your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, to Romans chapter 12. And uh, the text this morning that Pastor John will walk through with us is the first two verses as Paul shifts gears in this great epistle. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, my heart's desire is that in response to this word and in the very hearing of it, the miracle of a transformed mind would be done, created. It is called a creation in Ephesians 4.24, created according to God in righteousness and knowledge of the truth. So, Creator Spirit, come. And in response to the word, create the new Christian mind in your people, I pray. And should there be any here who know not Christ as loving Savior and Lord, may a mind of trust and a mind of allegiance and hope in Him be born this morning. In His name we pray. Amen. Now, twice, I think, three times, really, in, in two weeks, we've been talking about the gift of prophecy. We've been defining it. We've been defending its contemporary relevance for the church today. We've been saying that the gift of prophecy is not like the inspired verbally inspired word of Holy Scripture, but is different. It's the same in the sense that both are rooted in revelation given to the mind, but different in that God inspired the very words of Scripture, superintending the writing in order to guard it from error. But He did not do that in the case of the gift of prophecy in the New Testament. Rather, the New Testament prophets behold the revelation in their mind imperfectly. They think about it imperfectly. They tell it imperfectly. And therefore, the New Testament says, test it, sift it, hold fast to what is good, and leave aside what is not good. The gift of prophecy and the gift of Scripture are not parallel means of knowing the will of God. Scripture is superordinate and the gift of prophecy is subordinate. That's been the point of the last several times together. And that even though this gift of prophecy yields speech which is fallible and needs to be sifted, Paul regards it as an immensely valuable gift to the church, good for our edifying. And therefore, we should find a place for it now. What I want to say this morning is the gift of prophecy is not meant by God to be the ordinary means by which we discern the will of God. The gift of prophecy 
is not meant by God to be the ordinary, usual means by which we know the will of God and lead our lives. Why? Why isn't it? Well, let me give you some illustrations first to show you that I think it's the case, that it's not. When this happens, when a person begins to uh, start to depend on messages, revelations for all the decisions of life, like financial decisions and job decisions and mate decisions and purchasing decisions, the language of persuasion, wisdom, insight, reason begin begins to be replaced by the language of oh, the Lord told me and the Lord said and God told me and it's a very different spirituality than you find in the New Testament. I want to illustrate that for you before we get into why why that's the case and why God has not chosen to lead his children mainly by the gift of prophecy. Paul did not evidently lead his life this way, and when he commended practical wisdom to the church, he didn't urge us to be led that way. For example, in Philippians 2.25, he says, I have thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus to you. Now, there was a decision Paul made. I have thought it necessary. And the word behind that word thought is, I have reckoned that it's needful and necessary to do this. He didn't evidently have a revelation concerning send Epaphroditus. Rather, he reflected on the need of the church back there in Philippi. He reflected on the condition of Epaphroditus. He reflected on the glory of God and the moral principles of Scripture. And he reckoned now is a good time and necessary to send him. And he made his choice confident that it was going to please the Lord. Another illustration is, is uh, 1 Corinthians 16.4. Here he describes uh, his own decisions about going and coming like this. It, if it seems advisable to me to go also, they will accompany me. If it seems advisable to me to go. The word behind advisable there is fitting or worthy. Here we don't have Paul saying, should I go or shouldn't I go? Should they go with me or shouldn't I? Lord, give me a message. Rather, you have Paul weighing, reflecting, is it a fitting thing for me to go? Is it worthy? Is it a beautiful, moral choice given the situation there in Jerusalem and giving the condition of this money that I'm carrying and all things considered with my spiritual wisdom informed by biblical truth, is it advisable? And he makes his choice. When he writes to the church Corinth about their choice making. You remember the time that uh, there were these two people evidently that were so upset with each other there had been such a grievance or such a legal dispute that they were about to go to court among secular judges to settle this dispute in the church. And Paul is throwing up his hands and writing them as to how they should be responding here and he says, can it be that there is not among you a man wise enough to decide between members of the brotherhood? Isn't that interesting? He didn't say, is it not the case that there are prophets there who could give the God-willed choice of what should be done, who's right? He didn't say, he didn't appeal to the prophets for settling this. 
he said, is there not man wise enough among you to settle this dispute? My conclusion from these few illustrations is that Paul, in his ordinary walk through life, and in his advice to the churches concerning their ordinary walk through life, it was not the ordinary means of leading your life that you appeal to revelation. Special, immediate messages coming to your mind as to which one of these parties in the suit is right. But rather, wisdom, digging in, assessing, weighing spiritually, biblically what the case is. I think we need this warning because whenever you hit upon a new spiritual reality that's powerful, the tendency is to overplay it and give it a larger place in life than it ought to have. And I think that's especially true of the gift of prophecy because it's so striking. Namely, if it's really true that God gives us messages, wow, what I could do with that, you know? And then you start to seek it and seek it, and all the choices that you make during the day, you're trying to tune in, get your frequency right so you get messages. It's a real temptation in that regard. And I think we just need some level-headed, balancing counsel from Scripture that that's just not the way Paul lived, nor is it the way he commended us to make our decisions. Now, why would that be the case? Why do you think Paul would suggest as God's emissary that we not lead our lives that way, that we choose the way of spiritual wisdom rather than special revelatory messages that come breaking into our brain at every choice that we make. My answer to that question, why, goes something like this. If we led our lives on the basis of frequent messages about everything that we should do, it's very likely that we would short-circuit the transforming process of the mind which we need so desperately. You know it is possible, don't you, to be a very impure, unsanctified person and get messages from God. That's the reason that out of the vineyard they had this conference that we went to on holiness. Because John Wimber knew his church was rife with unholiness just like most churches are rife with unholiness, in spite of the amazing supernatural phenomena that were going on there. And the Bible makes very plain what is paramount in the work of the Holy Spirit. The main work of the Holy Spirit is to make you new, not to inform your brain of messages. That's the main work. The main work is holiness. And therefore, I think it's so important for us at this stage in our reflection upon the good and beneficial gift of prophecy to say it is not the means by which we are to lead our lives ordinarily. Now, what God wants from us is conformity to Christ so that we assess the way he assesses think the way he thinks, see the way he sees, are repelled by what he is repelled by, 
All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to what? Be conformed to the image of his Son. Any commendation to you to seek God's will by supernatural means that short-circuits a radical conformation to Jesus Christ is not a biblical piece of advice. Now, the best way to see this is just to go right to Romans 12, 2 and watch what Paul does here as he turns from these deep theological matters of Romans 9 to 11 to these profound practical matters of Romans 12 to 15 Does he not say clearly that the basic means for doing the will of God is a mental ability to prove or confirm what the will of God is? A mental ability. Let's read verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, notice three things. Number one, the will of God must be proved. Now, that word in English is a little bit ambiguous because we think of proving like in geometry, prove this theorem or something like that, or proving a case that's in doubt. The word dokimazo in Greek is larger than that, has at least three dimensions. It means to prove in the sense of testing or examining something. So check it out. See if this is the will of God here. And then it means to certify or verify that that's the case. And then it means to embrace it, to approve it. Those are the three ideas that are in this word, prove the will of God. What he's saying here is that the will of God, all the potential wills of God that are out there that you're walking into, like forks in the road, need to be proved. Examined and thought about and verified and then embraced. Second thing to notice is this. That act of the examining, verifying, embracing is done by the mind. The mind. The mind. The Christian mind is the organ of testing the will of God. Discerning, examining verifying, certifying, and then embracing the will of God. It's the mind. Third, unless the mind is renewed, it can't do that. The mind must be renewed. Be transformed in the renewal of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, good, acceptable, and perfect. You will not be able to discern the will of God as you examine the possibilities unless your mind has been changed by God and made new. None of us comes into the world with a mind that can discern the will of God. So you can see, I hope, why God would make prophecy subordinate and not the main means of discerning the will of God. If he had made prophecy the main means by which we determine the will of God and lead our lives, this whole process 
of being transformed in the renewing of our minds could be short-circuited, minimized, even evaded. Because you know, don't you, that a servant, a servant can get messages from his master, do those messages and not love his master and not be like his master. It is possible. In fact, probably it is frequent that that's the case. And therefore, what we need is for the master to say, watch the way I act. Learn my principles, and then would you go, without hearing all the details from me, and be a real good reflection of who I am and a real good representative of me in the world? Now go and leave us. Because when that happens, you know what's required of us? Radical transformation. Radical transformation. If you are out there without messages then you have to be like Jesus to know how to act. You have to assess things the way He assesses them. You have to see the way He sees. You have to think the way He thinks. How easy it would be to short-circuit this renewal process if we just said, at every decision, I don't really need to check out whether I'm corrupt and see things the way Christ thinks, because I've got a message. Boom, I'll just do what the message says and leave all of this undealt with down here. It happens. And Christ means for it not to happen. And therefore, the ordinary means by which we are to discern and do the will of God is not by messages from outside by special revelation. Now the question rises then, how shall we get this new mind? If we are to have a mind that is renewed so that it can prove what is the will of God, good, acceptable, and perfect, where does it come from? How do you get it? I sure want more of it. And I have four suggestions for you, four steps that I believe the Bible makes real clear that lead toward the new mind. Number one, you must simply begin this morning by recognizing your need for a profound renovation of mind. If you're sitting there thinking, my mind functions just fine. My mind is a good mind. It's, it's clear. It makes right choices. It weighs things adequately. It thinks God's thoughts after him. I don't need anything. Then, then you won't get anywhere because you haven't recognized the depth of the corruption of the human mind. The human mind is distorted and depraved. It comes into the world using all of its powers like a prostitute prostituting God's good gift of thought for the sake of futility. Let me read you probably the most thorough indictment of the human mind in all the Bible from Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. It goes like this. Now this I affirm and testify in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. That's a whopping indictment of the human mind. That's all of us. That's all of us apart from renovation by grace through the Spirit. Let me read that text backwards just so that you can see the root of hardness leading to the fruit of futility through the mind. 
goes like this. The deep root is hard-heartedness in verse 18, which leads now up to blameworthy ignorance, not innocent ignorance of God, blameworthy ignorance rooted in hardness of heart, which leads to alienation from God, which leads to a pervasive darkness of understanding, which leads to the brain being prostituted in the uses of futility. How much magnificent Godlike brain power is expended on futile things today. I was thinking yesterday, even listening to that siren, makes me think about technology, medical technology. The brain power of the human being is phenomenal. I was over at Bethel on Friday night, got this wonderful demonstration in the physics department of a laser and a few other things that just kind of made my mouth hang open because I hadn't seen stuff like that. And I just thought to myself, a little less than God we are. A little less than God, these brains. And I just thought then of the judgment day. And millions of high caliber intellects standing before Jesus Christ and him looking at them with tears running down his face and saying, you know who gave you that mind? You know who made that, thought that up, put all those nerves together? And in your hardness of heart, you blocked me out of your knowledge. There was a pervasive darkness in your understanding and you invested that wonderful gift again and again in futility. I never knew you. Depart from me, you brilliant, brilliant fools, into everlasting torment. The mind is a wonderful gift, brothers and sisters. It's meant to be put to use for the king. Love God with all your mind, Jesus said. But the fact is, nobody loves God with the mind until it is renovated, renewed. Do not be conformed to the world, but be renewed in your mind. Step number two, after you've recognized the need for that, seen enough evidence in your own life, depend upon the Holy Spirit to do that renewing. Depend, trust, rely upon the Holy Spirit to do that renewing. Now, the text for the first point was Ephesians 4.17. The text for the second point is Titus 3.5. And it goes like this, Titus 3.5. God saved us, not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and, here it comes, renewal in the Holy Spirit. Hear it? Renewal, how? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit renews. I don't renew myself. You can't make yourself new. You can't take your brain out, wash it up and say, now it'll function right and be for God. Boom, put it back in. It is corrupt. It is deep. Oh, the deceitfulness of the human mind. Only one can change it, make it new. God Almighty, by His Holy Spirit. He is the change agent. And you know what? When God does that, it is as wonderful as the gift of prophecy because the Holy Spirit's involved in both. But it is more wonderful than the gift of prophecy. Do you know why? Because Satan can imitate the gift of prophecy easy with a sorcerer and a zeus No problem. 
Satan cannot make anybody holy. Satan can't make anybody righteous. He can't make anybody loving or humble or pure or kind. He can't make anybody discerning of truth. He's helpless before the Holy Spirit's superiority. When you focus on becoming new, you focus on the paramount work of the Holy Spirit. Then, when you focus there, the gift of prophecy will have its place in your life and it will be a blessing through you. But not otherwise. That's number two. Depend upon the Holy Spirit. Number three, pray for spiritual understanding. Pray for spiritual understanding. The reason I think this must be mentioned in a list is because when I read the New Testament, especially when I say, Paul, how did you work to get this into the lives of your people in the churches? How did you get their minds new? What did you do? I mean, if there's any human agency involved, what was it? And what do you read at the beginning of Paul's letters? Prayers. And what does he pray first in his prayers? I'll give you a couple of examples. Philippians 1.9 It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may prove what is excellent. Now what is that? What's going on here? He did not pray that they would have the gift of prophecy so that they could prove what is excellent. He said, may your love abound with knowledge and discernment, insight. Wise love moving through the world discerns what is excellent. And that's just Romans 12, 2, all over again. The renewed mind proving the will of God which is good and acceptable and perfect. That is excellent. Another illustration is uh, Colossians 1, 9. We have not ceased to pray for you. Notice that. He doesn't cease this kind of praying. Every day he prays it. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. How? How? I want to be filled with the knowledge of his will. Oh, show me this next phrase. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, I just commend to you, parents, pray that every day for your children. Fill my sons with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding that they might lead a life pleasing to the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work. May they be strengthened with power in the inner man that they might endure with joy. Pray Paul's prayers for your children every day and then, of course, for yourself and everybody else you care about. So the third step is prayer. We have not ceased to pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in wisdom and understanding. And then finally, my fourth suggestion And probably it's the most needful to hear and the most practically applicable for change right now in your life, perhaps, is 
Focus your attention on the glory of God. Focus your attention on the glory of God. And there's a reason for this. You become what you behold. Now that's not just a nifty little saying. That's a straight out biblical paraphrase of 2 Corinthians 3.18. I'll read it to you. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed. Just stop right there. How do you get changed? Behold the glory of God. If you behold the glory of God and hold it in fixed view, you will become like that. In your mind, you will think the way God thinks. See the way God sees. Feel the way God feels. Assess the way God assesses. You will be repelled by the things that repel God when you behold the glory of the Lord. Let me finish reading. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness from one one degree of glory to another. I just love that phrase. It's so hope-giving because I know I've got such a long way to go. One degree of glory to another. It's progressive. The holiness that comes by beholding the glory of God does not happen instantaneously. From one degree of glory to the next, we move toward the image of Christ. But the point I want to make here is it happens by beholding Him. If you've got your Bibles open to that text, you might want to just look across the page or somewhere a chapter later. 2 Corinthians 4.16. Listen to this awesome statement of the man, the old man. Paul's getting old here. He's got arthritis maybe and his back aches and his eyes are not so good anymore and his hearing's not so good and he can't walk as far. And he says, so we do not lose heart though our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed. It's the same word from Romans 12 too. It's being renewed every day. Now how? How, Paul? How do you as an old man get new every day? The answer for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Here's the reason. Because we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, here's the key to being new, brothers and sisters. You want to be new in your mind as a young person, in your whole being and spirit as an old person? You want to be new? Stop watching the world, which very practically comes down to television. Stop watching the world. Why would we want to be entertained by the unbelieving so much? Why are we so hooked on the video and on the television and on the movies and on the radio? World, tell me, show me, feed me, shape me, make me. That's what we're doing. Oh, no, not really. I'm not the least affected when I watch. You become what you 
Behold. And I just ask you to compare in your life the degree to which you behold the Lord Jesus and the glory of our God compared to the degree to which you behold the world. How do they compare? Might there not be some insight here as to why we live in weakness and failure in the temptations of our lives? Why we don't have the effect in the world that we would like to have? Why our relationships can't be fixed? Is there perhaps some correlation between the fact that we focus so much on the world? We live in the world. We ooze world. We watch world. We read world. How many of us read books that have spiritual wisdom? Look at television that has spiritual wisdom. Look at movies that have spiritual wisdom. Read the Bible with its spiritual wisdom. How much time do we devote to this biblical principle that is unassailable? You become what you behold. Oh, I urge you to check out your lifestyle. Do you want to become holy? Do you want to become new so that you see like Jesus Think like Jesus, feel like Jesus, love like Jesus, care like Jesus, judge like Jesus. If you do, there is an agenda. Watch Jesus a lot. Father, I just beg for the miracle of transformation in our lives. Would you come right now and just convict us and give us some choices about how we spend your Lord's Day afternoon and evening? Are we really going to go home? Are we going to spend more time tonight asking the world without any God in it to entertain us? Then we will reap what we sow. And I just pray, Father, that that not be so. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen.